Welcome to the Money School Podcast for January 17th, 2021. I want to start today's episode by reflecting and paying respects to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It's his weekend in in our country where we honor his life and how he dedicated it in a way that I feel like over the last couple of years, we haven't been respectful towards or embraced or upheld in a manner that's, you know, deserving or what is in the hearts of real Americans. Um, And the response of the money school from my black friends and from my friends of, you know, immigrant families, people that just moved here, people that haven't participated in the stock market, young people of every race, um, people that are getting closer to retirement, they've never owned stocks, all these groups of people that have been disenfranchised from financial markets or haven't had a, a, a seat at the table historically, the urgency within these communities to learn about stocks and investing in financial markets is amazing. And I love it. And it's been the best part, the absolute best part of any of the money school stuff thus far is all of the urgency to learn these tools to create opportunities for themselves and their loved ones. And one of the things that when I think about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his legacy and why it's important to me personally is that I have a similar dream that I hope that our children, that their opportunities aren't dictated by the color of their skin or the neighborhood they were born in or any of these limiting factors or their access to education or to capital or to any of these things. I hope that all of these systems get destroyed in time. And the way that we destroy them is by increasing our presence and by forcing corporations and the money to act in a manner that actually represents our interests and who we are as people. And the best way to do that for people that haven't been participating is to start now and to teach all their loved ones how to do it too and to teach your kids how to do it and to teach your kids why it's important to own stocks and businesses and to create jobs and to be responsible with money and to be somebody that their families can lean on in a time of crisis. And when somebody needs help in their community, they can be the person that people come to. And that's the point of all of these tools. And I found that there is more urgency in a lot of communities that have never had access or, or I don't, I don't know. I think the technology makes a huge di- uh, difference in the democratization of the access to all of these different markets. Um, but we're moving towards a more inclusive, more sustainable, more mutually respectful and beneficial, both market and economy and society Together, all of these things together are going to continue to prove as our voices continue to get stronger. And your dollars that you have, that you spend and that you invest, are that's your voice. So if you can grow your voice by investing and by growing your children's voices, by investing in them early 
and investing in 529 plans so that their college will be paid for by the time that they get there. College right now in 2021 isn't the most popular thing. You're going to want your kids to go to college 20 years from now. It's going to be a different dynamic. We're going, it goes in way you're going to want to have money there to educate your family. And you can do that by investing dollars right now. And that's what the whole world is turning on to right now is that you, you can participate from your phone. You don't have to have, I mean, even like the stock or the, the movie Trading Places, the highlights, the inequities of financial markets between groups of, of haves and have nots. And the whole mission of the money school and of channels like Earn Your Leisure um, are to increase the voting power, the real voting power of real people, to amplify voices of real people, to move the ball in the direction of, of humanity and real people, having better, more prosperous lives with better health care and better education, more stable financial situations. That's coming for all of us. And there's a lot of institutions that are going to fight that, and they won't win. So in honor of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., love and respect to him and his family, his legacy, love and respect to everybody out there that has human rights and civil rights um, and the advancement of human beings and the, the continued prosperity for everybody out there, no matter what their skin color or what their ethnic or, or religious background is or the dirt that they're born on, the prosperity of all mankind to continue to grow and the ability to love one another and to, to solve bigger problems and to create a better, more prosperous environment to give to our kids for them to give to their kids because that's the point of the whole thing. So we're at a turning point in, with the internet and with technology. It's connecting the voices of a bunch of human beings that have never had voices for the entirety of mankind. Almost nobody has had a voice. And as we've gone from oligarchs and kings and queens, we're now going towards a true democracy where real people have voting power all the time. So embrace that power and take it very responsibly. Today's part three of getting started with stocks is going to be once you've decided what account is appropriate and you've funded your account, money's in there, you're ready to go. How do you get started? What do you do now? The first step before you even fund your account or once you get you know, your app open and you know what account and brokerage you're going to use is to build a watch list. Put 15 to 25 companies that you know and understand that you're interested in that you're just going to track and pay attention to. And that's going to be your universe of stocks. You can add, you can subtract, but your watch list is just that. You're keeping an eye on it and you're not invested in any of it yet. And then from there, once you're ready to go and dip your toe in, Start really small. That's the best part of the market today is that there's no transaction costs essentially and the most of the brokerages allow fractional shares. So let's say you're in a small Robinhood account and you have, call it $500. You can start with a few hundred dollars. Once you've determined 
your watch list and you've kept an eye on a few different things, you know what you, you want to dip your toe into, you can go dollar by dollar in Robinhood. You can go $10 by $10. You can buy $20 a day of five stocks until you're fully invested. If you don't have fractional shares, you can go share by share and you can lean your way in. And I think that that's a great way to get practice early on when you're first getting started. Once you're trading a lot, you'll be really comfortable. You'll, you'll do bigger lots of, of shares and all that. That's fine. The, the thing to remember early on is your returns don't matter when you first get started. It's all about learning the tools, getting comfortable with the platform, kind of feeling how the market works on a day-to-day basis, and just kind of wading yourself into the water. You don't have to just cannonball in. Um, I think you'll be fine if you do cannonball in on the long term. You might be wrong on the short term. If you start small and go slow, in the short term, you increase your odds that you won't be horribly wrong right off the bat. And you can aim small, miss small. So go share by share and add your initial portfolio should be five companies that you understand that aren't directly correlated with each other. If they're overly correlated for the first five, that's all right. You just don't want to own all electric vehicles or all you know, digital payments. You want to own a mix of a bunch of different things. So start small and start adding share by share your first five names, and those will be your core positions. As the market goes up, If you need to rebalance, you can sell a little bit, trim, move your money around. As the market goes down, you'll know these are my core positions that I believe in the most. And you buy those on the dip and you just continue to buy. And if you stay disciplined, only adding stocks when the market is down and when the market is up, you use that as an opportunity to trim and rebalance, then you're always going to be in great shape. So if you have five or six ideas that you really believe in the most, you have your money allocated into them. You just you watch them, and as you add new dollars, you spread them out into those positions, keeping them even. And then, if any one of them has a huge move to the upside, you know, say you have five stocks and one of them is Tesla, and they're all even weight. If Tesla doubles or triples in value, then the weighting in your portfolio will go up. And if you're not comfortable with that, then you should be selling some of your Tesla, raising it into either a new position or rebalancing into your other core positions. And whenever the market is down, it's just a high confidence event when you know, you know, hey, the market's selling off here. There's, you know, a bunch of bad news in the market, but I don't think it it makes sense for DocuSign to be down 10%. Maybe their business wasn't impaired as badly as it's being sold off right now. And that happens all the time. And there's short-term inefficiencies in the market that if you have a long-term mindset that you can take advantage of. And you're only going to do that if you're confident in, what you own, why you own it, and the leadership there. So that's why it's really critical for you to know and own things that you understand and things that are important to you so that you don't panic when there's an ugly day in the market. And instead, you can say, this is a gift. I'm going going to, you know, pile into this and take a a bigger long-term position. That's typically what I do. Um, Sometimes a story will fundamentally change. Like Alibaba was a company that I was invested in until the Ant Financial IPO got shut down. And that story fundamentally changed and I let it go. I don't want to stay with it. That happens. And I think 
I could stay in this stock, I could add more, I could dollar cost down, or are these dollars going to return more for me somewhere else? And I thought that was the case. So I, re- I sold the stock and re- redeployed those dollars into ideas that I thought were stronger. When it comes to timing and pricing and order types, there are a few uh, important distinctions I want to make about a few things. So the first is with order types. Limit orders and market orders are really important that you understand the distinction between. A market order is just paying whatever is in the system, whatever the counterparty you get matched up with, you're paying, you know, think of it as you're at a restaurant and the the lobster dinner doesn't have a price, it's market price. Which doesn't mean it's not worth it if that's what you want to buy, but the opportunity for the shop to tell you what the market price is or have it how it fluctuates or maybe the price is not being super transparent or being the best they could be is just open for more um, haggling and interpretation. With a limit order, it's, you know, think of it, you're at a grocery store and there's a banana and, you know, it's 99 cents. If it was an auction type of model, you, a limit order would say, I'll buy that for a dollar. And you go a penny above what it's trading at and if the store is willing to sell it to you for a dollar, you'll fill for a dollar. If you put your limit order in for 85 cents, there might not be a seller for that banana at 85 cents. Um, the limit order is a really important tool to make sure that you're not overpaying in the market. And what I will do, with, especially with TD Ameritrade, is to just put the, the limit order slightly above or below where you, you, the stock is trading at that time. So that you're getting roughly that price. When you're in the market hours between 9.30 and 4 Eastern time, 6.30 to 1 on the West Coast, if you're in market hours in a stock like Apple, if you do a market order, you're fine. Where you have to worry about market orders especially is after hours. If you say a stock's trading at $100, you put in a market order to buy however many shares, if that stock the next day opens way up, you might buy it on a spike. Um, You might sell it on a drop. And with a limit order, you protect yourself from that. So use limit orders all the time. If you want to buy Apple, you say you want to buy a stock and it's trading at $101 or $100, I'll put the limit order in for $100.25, something like that. So if you're within, depending on the, the ticker of the stock, the smaller the price, the tighter you want to be with your limit. If a stock is trading $25 and your limit is $25.05, then you're going to buy all the shares you can up until the amount that you've put in up until that $25.05 max offer. And that's what you want to be doing just to control your pricing and to make sure that you're not getting any inefficiencies on your end. The other part about pricing that's really important to understand is the idea of the greater fool theory of investing and then also the marginal pricing system of how commodities and stocks and how all of these things are priced. A big one that comes out all the time is the IPO. An IPO comes out at 50 that day it trades up to 100 and all the analysis is, well, why didn't they just do the IPO at $100? They missed all this money because that's not how it works. That $100 price is what one investor is willing to pay. That last share demanded was at $100. They couldn't do the entire IPO at $100. So what happens is 
think about all of the barrels of oil that the world economy needs. The way oil gets priced is based off of the last marginal swing barrel demanded in the entire system. So that millionth and one barrel, the price of that barrel sets the price of every barrel that gets sold for that cycle. So it's the same with stocks. If the smart investors are willing to pay $150 a share for Airbnb, but there's one investor out there that's willing to buy a share of it for $200, a trade will go through in the system for $200 and that will be the price for all of the shares to trade. So when we're looking at what the last trades were for certain things, it's only what one buyer and one seller are willing to exchange with each other. And the broker sits in the middle of that with, you know, their, if you're on, on TD Ameritrade and I sell a share of Apple in TD Ameritrade and you're buying it, I'm selling it to TD Ameritrade and you're buying it from TD Ameritrade. You're not really buying it from me. They play in the middle. That's how they make their money. Let's keep things at the produce stand for a second. Say there's 10 apples for sale on any given day, and there's 20 people that want to buy those apples. The market can either say, the set price of these apples is $3 per apple. And in the stock market, what happens is buyers are coming in and looking at what's for sale and making their own bids for their own individual circumstances. So I might come in and say, oh, these apples are $3 a piece. But if I buy all of them, can I buy them for 250? Or if one person wants to buy an apple and they only want one, but they really need that apple, maybe they'll pay 4 or 5 dollars for it. And that's what the market's doing all day long is just matching buyers and sellers in a price discovery process that's very efficient. And the market is extremely efficient at matching buyers and sellers from just a macro sense of pairing people up without huge fees at this point is really pretty incredible because what's going on all day long is there's a certain amount of shares that are for sale and there's a certain amount of people that need to apply, you know, not necessarily people, but dollars that need to go into those stocks on a given day. And if there's an imbalance between what's for sale and what needs to be bought, prices will fluctuate. And the marginal pricing will be driven by, you know, selling it, it. It's never one buyer or one seller that's the very last price with stocks because the market's just so huge. But at a certain point, Apple goes from, you know, 2 trillion to 2.1 trillion to 2.4 trillion to 2.6 trillion. And it becomes marginally less attractive as it gets more expensive. But that doesn't mean that there's not somebody in the market that desperately needs that share, even if the market value is at $2.5 where most of the investors don't value the company at that rate. And if they choose to, they can sell. But the reality is, is that most recent pricing gets applied to all of the share value, which is why the wealth creation is so enormous within stocks. And it can also lead to wealth destruction if there is some change in an idea where 
investors all rush for the crowded door is a metaphor where they, uh, you know, the stock market loves to use the building is burning and everybody's trying to leave through the same couple of doors. There is an effect where if there's a huge surplus of sell side demand where everybody wants out of the stock at once and there's way more sellers than there are buyers, it'll have the other effect where the stock will go way down in value. So understanding the supply and demand of who's buying and selling a stock and like Apple is a stock that has to be Apple, not the the produce. Apple, the company is a company that, you know, every the S&P indexes, but all of the major indexes, if you don't hold Apple in your managed fund, if you're a, a money manager or you're running an ETF, if you don't have it in there, you're going to underperform the market. So they constantly have to be buying shares. And one of the things that's important is there's always for, for companies that are solid and growing without a fundamental shock to their story, there's always more buying demand than there is selling supply. And that's why prices drift higher over the long term. And very rarely, you know, they'll go down in the short term if there are changes in earnings or potential negative news or or something like that. Unless the story fundamentally changes and breaks down, there's almost on a daily basis, on more than a 50-50 shot, there is more stock demand dollars that need to buy stocks either by mandate of whatever their investment thesis is or just people that don't want their money sitting in a savings account or they're earning money that they need to you know their 401k every time you earn a paycheck money goes into your 401k that creates demand for stocks so there's always more demand than there is supply. And that explains the upward drift of why stocks appreciate and why stocks go up more often than they go down. It's been you know, a running joke the last couple of years that stocks only go up and they will typically fluctuate more than there is. You know, there's just a lot of, of liquidity and money in the financial system and that tampers down volatility. And if there's a lot of dollars that need a place to go with low interest rates, you're not getting your return somewhere else. If there's no other alternative, money goes into stocks and that's why the drift is in a certain direction, why stocks tend to go up more than they go down. But there's forces that are central to why that happens. In regards to marginal pricing and the greater fool theory, the greater fool theory is just if you're buying an investment or any type of good, if you're exchanging dollars for it that you're looking to you know, eventually resell whatever you're buying. Again, if you're looking to flip it or invest in it or potentially have it appreciate and gain value, the idea of the greater fool is that if you buy something, you have an expectation that there's another greater fool out there that you can sell it to if you need to. You never, you never want to be the last greatest fool. Whenever I'm looking at a stock, I'm looking at, am I the greatest fool buying Tesla right now or are there, are there more coming? As long as there's more coming, then you'll probably be okay long-term. Um, when you're looking at a stock and the marginal pricing of who are the new buyers for it, a big, this is happening in Bitcoin in a huge way where the marginal buyers right now are enormous institutional investors that are buying a lot of Bitcoin that are driving the prices higher because there's not as much for sale, but if the demand is higher and if those marginal buyers are either greater fools or have more urgency or see something different in it and are willing to pay more, the price is going to drive up. We're seeing that in stocks. We're seeing that in a huge way in in Bitcoin right now. One thing that you have to remember is the supply and demand 
of stocks, just like Bitcoin. And Bitcoin is a finite commodity that is, you know, has a set schedule of how it's going to grow and terminate its growth. The stocks are are somewhat like that. They can continue to dilute and issue new shares if they want. But for a lot of companies, the amount of shares that they have are finite and they aren't going to raise additional capital through selling more stocks. And who owns those shares is really important. So one thing that you can look at is the institutional ownership. That's a percentage number that's in most of the applications will tell you like as a stat next to the price to earnings multiple. You want that percentage to be as low as possible. And what that indicates is if the float of the shares outstanding are owned by real people versus the whole company has been sold off and is now institutionally owned and is owned by index funds and pension funds and by the market divided up, those shares are worth less than the Walmart shares are worth um, because look at the float at Walmart. The fact is that most of the Walmart shares aren't traded on the public market. And they're owned by the Walton family still. So if they ever wanted to go private, there's going to be a premium on those shares. So you always want to be in ideas that aren't fully saturated. And a big way to look at that is institutional ownership. The other driving factor for supply and demand of stocks are mostly pension funds and 401ks. That's two-thirds of the stock market is people's retirement money that's just in pensions and long-term 401ks that are in index funds, collecting fees for the financial industry. And what they're owning is kind of all over the map. One of the themes that's happening with a lot of those funds is a phrase called ESG. And ESG is just sustainable government governance and environmentally friendly boards of, of directors and business practices. The whole ESG theme is based around mostly young people, but all investors changing their preferences away from ideas like coal, cigarettes, fossil fuels, um, potentially things like Facebook, if they don't, you know, have huge privacy and, you know, speech overhaul changes, if they don't change their terms of services, I think we could see some social media get thrown into the ESG basket. And ESG is a really important force to understand because They've, if a fund has any type of ESG mandate, they're not going to buy an ExxonMobil or any of those, or Monsanto, any of those big companies. So the demand for those stocks has dropped. On the other hand, electric, you know, renewables and sustainable energy, those have the opposite effect where the market is now underweight these companies based on the mandate of having to own more sustainable type of companies. So as the energy sector has really declined, it's being replaced by a new renewable energy tech sector that's kind of springing up. So I do think it's really important to know who you're investing alongside with, who owns the other shares in the company, and just what's happening with their board of directors. You know, companies like Nike and Lululemon, Amazon, people that are selling products to the entire world, to diverse communities. They need to have diverse management all the way at the very top of their company so that they understand their customer. And that's a really important theme that is continuing to grow and will continue to grow. And when you're investing in a company, one of the things that other people are looking at is how proactive 
is this company being towards making itself you know, more ESG friendly by being more sustainable and being more inclusive and being more diverse? If you aren't diverse, if your board is not diverse at this stage of the game, then you're in deep shit. Like just straight up, like you can't have a board of 70 year old white dudes, even if you're only selling stuff to old white people, like you have to have a board of directors and a management team that is representative of the community in which you provide goods and services. Like, I don't understand where this got lost on people or generationally why we accepted this for so long, but there should be more female CEOs. There should be more people of all races, religions, ethnic backgrounds on board of directors of major companies. The board of directors for major companies should look like the UN. Like, it shouldn't look like some suburban... 50s golf club like that's not how this works and that's not what's best for for business or humanity so when you're looking at businesses there are definitely some that have been more proactive and better than others and the ones that aren't with how things are changing in terms of our society and what our society demands and and with those ideas how we want those ideas executed we want them reflective of things that we're proud of So ESG really kind of goes back. It's hard to say, is a company a good company, bad company? It's really, are we proud of this company or are we not proud of this company? And that's what you have to think of when you're buying these stocks. Is this something I'm proud to own or is this something I'm embarrassed to own? And if it's something that you're embarrassed to own, then you can't own it. Um, You know, 10 years ago, I owned... Raytheon and a couple defense contractor companies. And I got to a point where I couldn't continue to own that because we were droning people to death in the Middle East without any trial or any. And, and while that the defense sector was booming and it was good for the stocks, I just felt like this is gross money and I don't want to earn money this way. So I haven't held that sector. So I've been ESG in my own way, but I've also owned you know, Facebook and Palantir. I have Palantir in my portfolio right now. There's no um, reason for me to own that from a ESG standpoint. I mean, that's a, a, a foul data privacy intrusion, intrusion type of company. So there is a layer of hypocrisy in it, but I do think it's important to understand, you know, if there's only so many shares of a company, who owns the rest of those shares with you? Are you invested with you know, other good real people that are behind this idea or you invested with, you know, the Koch brothers? Because if you own C3.ai, that private round was led by the Koch brothers. So that's who you're in bed with. That's who I'm in bed with. That's who anybody who owns that stock is in bed with. So I'm trading that as a stock. That's not something I'm investing in. I do think there is a difference. But long term, the demand for these stocks will get impacted based on the perception of are we proud of this or not? So as you start to pick your first few stocks, I think it's important to consider all these things up front so that you don't have to, you know, maybe reconsider things down the road. So I don't want to overcomplicate things, but it is important to know what you own, why you own it, who else owns it and where the demand for that stock is coming from. So those first 
four or five stocks should be the things that you really believe in the very most. It doesn't matter really what the price of those, the valuations, the fun. If you believe in the idea still, that's where you should start. Start with what you believe in most. Start small. Get through a couple earnings calls. Listen to the earnings calls. You can go back and you can listen to, you know, everything is available online. If you want to own more than five stocks, my personal rule is you can own as many stocks as you want, but you have to listen to the earnings call every quarter. If you can listen to the earnings call for 20 different companies, then own 20 different companies. If you have time for three or four, stay in your lane. That's fine. Own what you're most proud of and what you're most confident in. Very rarely will that lead you astray. So the demand for stocks is largely thinking about how other people will interpret something that you already believe now. And maybe you believe something earlier than other people, you know, maybe they're not coming around to it quite yet. I mean, look at Amazon, Amazon and Tesla, these companies had long multi-year runs where they were tough stocks to own. So you really, there were a lot of years, now it's really easy to look smart owning them. That tough money, when it wasn't a for sure thing, took conviction and belief and pride in those companies. And one of the reasons why Tesla is surging now is because a lot of investors are really proud to be flaunting their gains in it, which that is another equation which isn't always healthy. Because right now, when people are glorifying how much money they're making, that can go away real quick. If you're invested in a company and as its ideas are coming, becoming real and changing the world and providing the impact that you believed in, it becomes more than that. It becomes something really special. And it becomes something that is more than the money. Like the more than the money I've ever made in NVIDIA, I'm proud that Jensen is partly from Oregon and went to Barlow in Oregon State in Stanford and then has led this incredible team of engineers to build this technology that's really, really moving the needle for humanity. Like as a person, somebody that I've looked up to for a long time, that I've invested my money in, yeah, but also I've told so many people to buy and own and invest in NVIDIA and it wasn't because I was trying to make them money. It's because I was trying to share an idea that I believed in. And it's made them money too. But it's also put that idea on their radar. So it's more than just if people are proud about, man, I've made so much money in Bitcoin. Is that real? If somebody really believes in Bitcoin and they're saying, look at how this is becoming real. And that's what they're focused on. That's higher integrity to me. Does that make sense? I, uh, it's not a fully formed thought. But there are just a lot of new voices in this world that are teaching people how to invest, myself included. I, I'm a self-investor. 
I started when I was in the fourth grade. I have loved the stock market my entire life. I went to college for finance. I own a real estate brokerage. I help a lot of people with their finance, their money, their investments naturally. And the money school came from answering the same questions over and over again. I'm not always qualified to answer a lot of your questions. I don't give financial advice. I'll always defer to a professional or somebody that that's all they do if that's what you need. The reality is, is there's a lot of people that are just giving advice that just started. There's a lot of people that are trying to get rich quick or trying to sell some bullshit. Like all my stuff is free. I'm not trying to like, I put a value on my time and I think it's important, but I I didn't want to charge anything. The initial money school stuff helped build some content. And then I got to the point where I just wanted to give it all away for free because of the amount of people that were creeping up on every social channel, just touting stocks. And that's not what this should be. The community of investors, like if you go to the earn your leisure channel, those dudes aren't selling you anything. Those guys are just trying to put you on. Like what they're doing is, you know, essentially the Lord's work. Like they're just putting out all this great information and content about investing and having people that have real experience like Mark Cuban and Josh Brown, like break stuff down in a way that I think I find just perfect. There's a lot of that out there. That's who you should be listening to. There's a lot of people that follow Tesla that can break down their their operating efficiency and their deliveries and how the Gigafactory is working, how full self-drive is working and you know all of these different factors. That's who you should be listening to with Tesla. Don't care about the person that said if you bought Tesla in 2010, it'd be worth all this shit ton of money because you probably would have sold it between sometime between then and now. That's cool to understand for context, but that just like exploded in popularity. And I used to appreciate things like that and I would share stuff like that. And then it just became super popular of like, we're focusing on the wrong stuff here. So when you're listening to people give input on companies, make sure you're listening to them in regards to their ideas and their belief in the ideas and not just how things have been returning. Because Tesla went from a $60 billion company to a $600 billion company in an amount of time that it will never do a 10x ever again. For you to 10x your money in Tesla, we'll have to go to a $6 trillion company three times the size of Apple. So to get that same 10x return, you have to understand that that big, huge, major move is probably done. So if you're listening to people that are just talking about how much money they made over the last couple of years during that incredible move, like... That's not the whole story. I bought Tesla stock. I participated in that. I bought Tesla stock last week as part of my mechanical maintenance of my account. I believe in the story. I believe in Elon. I believe in the demand for the stock more than anything. And I believe that the operating efficiency of delivering these cars is just going to explode. And I think that as other EV manufacturers come in, they're going to need to use the supercharger network. That's, That's really pretty much it. I believe in the idea and I think the idea is going to continue to grow because I think there's a lot of new money that's not invested and that's an easy idea for them to wrap their heads around. So Tesla will continue to grow, but will it have that 10x multi-split performance again? We'll see. I think the market now is trying to look and rotate towards other ideas that have that run ahead of them. And that's more speculative because the quality of those companies won't be the same quality as Tesla. A few final terms that I want to touch on that get thrown around that 
maybe people take for granted. I don't know. I just want to put it out there. Um, bull and bear. Bull means somebody that's positive on the stock market, thinks things are going to go up. Being bearish on the stock market or being a bear thinks uh, the market is going to go down or has a negative viewpoint on the market. Um, momentum, that's pretty simple to, to wrap your head around, but just what has worked will continue working. Contrarian is thinking that people are wrong and taking the opposite side of things or looking for opportunities of where mainstream thinking is potentially incorrect or offsides. Leverage is the amount of essentially debt that you're using to amplify your capital to get an outsized return on your money. So if you're really levered up, then you're using a lot of debt and taking a lot of risk to potentially get an outsized return. And with that risk that you're taking, you could potentially lose more money in the pursuit of the outsized return. So there's a lot of ways that you can look at leverage, but leverage is basically like how much you're amplifying your risk by using either derivatives or other types of products that you can use, but you can turn up the volume on certain thoughts or positions you have and leverage is a way to do that. Leverage is also a way, um, you, it's something you have to understand with like a lot of people that have a margin account. If they have you know $100,000 in their account, they could have $200,000 of buying power with stocks on margin. And then if the stocks go down, it can create a margin call. The amount of leverage that's in the system overall is something that you'll hear about. And that's just what that means. More leverage is typically bad and more risk. Um, not necessarily bad, but you just have to understand if you're investing when there's a lot of leverage in the market, there's a chance that, you know, that could in the short term unwind itself. So um, contrarian is mostly fading what people think. Fading is just betting against, you know, if the market has been up seven, eight days in a row, a contrarian will sell the market. And likewise, if the market has been down a bunch of days in a row, they'll likely be the first people to buy. Um, just a way to look at the market viewpoint and see, are you going to go with the crowd? Or are you going to go against the crowd? Uh, liquidity is a word that gets used in a couple of different contexts. Typically, it's referring to how many dollars there are available in the overall financial system. So when the Federal Reserve created a lot of money in COVID stimulus, that created an effect where there were a lot of dollars in the system that needed to find a home, an investing home. There's a lot of liquidity in the system. When there's a lot of liquidity, that creates demand for stocks because the money has to go somewhere, especially if interest rates are really low. So if you inject liquidity, then that will create demand for stocks and that will usually uh, make stocks go higher. The other way that you can look at liquidity or the way that it gets used in financial markets is around how much volume there is with a particular stock. So um, Apple is a very liquid stock that trades millions and millions of shares every day, and it's really easy for you to get in and out. There are smaller companies who, you know, potentially their shares don't trade as much. So investing in them, you're more stuck in that position and in an illiquid type of instrument or company if you want to sell, you're normally going to have to sell at a discount to get that sold. Another common term that you'll see in your app is bid ask. The bid is just what some party in the system is willing to pay for a stock and the ask is what some seller is asking. 
Going back to Apple, Apple has a penny-wide bid-ask spread, so it's always very, very close. It's down to the penny. You'll see other companies that maybe don't trade as much if they're less liquid. They might have a wider bid-ask spread, which is really important for you to use your limit orders. So if you know a stock is trading at you know, it's pretty wide. It's rare for it to have a couple dollar bid ask spread. But if somebody's willing to buy a stock for 25 and somebody's willing to sell it for 30, if you use a market order and if you use a limit order, it's going to change if your order fills or if or how your offer looks in the system relative to what is what is currently in there. And the final term for this And we'll end with diversification, which is really important concept. And we'll end today with diversification and what that means and, and how it gets used with the market. First, it can be your portfolio composition, your diversification of owning stocks, which can also be called equities or bonds, which are fixed income, the debt of a company. A corporation can raise money by either selling their debt, their bonds, or by selling their stock, their equities. If we throw back to part one, I said I didn't want to get into capital allocation, talking about stocks, bonds, gold, Bitcoin, all of that stuff. I wanted to focus on how to actually pick the stocks and choose once we've decided we want to own stocks, what do we own within that? So diversification within that outside of asset classes, but types of stocks, I like to think of as ideas. You want to have non-correlated ideas. Maybe there's some overlap, but where they earn their money should be from different customers, from around different places around the world, from different areas. I like companies that sell a lot to businesses and to consumers that have, you know, a little bit higher net worth, uh, there's a lot of different ways you can approach investing. And I think diversification from a philosophical standpoint is really key. Not just, again, asset types, but growth companies that have lower price to earnings multiples that are more stable, more now companies, and then owning growth companies that have a higher PE and that will you know, continue to grow into the future. And when you own some growth and some value, another term you'll hear is the barbell approach. I think that is kind of overused. If you listen to CNBC, you'll hear it probably every day. Um, but that's just owning a mix of growth and value. That's also a way for TV pundits to give you advice that doesn't really hurt them. I like to own more growth than value. But I also will look within growth stocks as... Apple is a value growth stock to me. Amazon is becoming a value growth stock to me. NVIDIA, Adobe are value growth stocks. A growth, aggressive growth stock is something like Tesla, and there's a difference there. I mostly like to own growth. I don't like to own a lot of value dividend type of stocks. Because I'm a younger investor and I want to own more growth. As you change, your barbell should change. 
As you get older, you should own more growth or you should own more uh, fixed income and you should own just more conservative stocks that are less, they're going to fluctuate less for you. So, and just more stable. The other ideas within diversification are sectors, groups of industries that are potentially related or not related. And the S&P breaks these sectors down, you know, kind of inefficiently in my opinion, but you can pick a stock from each sector and pick one that you like, and that'll give you some automatic diversification. When you're looking for new ideas or potential ways to diversify your portfolio, one thing that I find really useful and is kind of a low-key hack that a lot of people don't take advantage of is every ETF has to post their top 10 holdings. So if you're in your TD Ameritrade app or if you type in um, into Google ARC-G holdings, it'll tell you the top 10 holdings that are in Kathy Wood's ARC Genomics Fund. And it will say the percentage of the, as their last report of how much of each they own. So you can see like how much they really believe in certain companies. And that is a great way to get companies introduced to you. So you might be at a point where you have three or four ideas that are kind of in a, a ballpark that you're comfortable with and you want to add another stock or two and you, don't, and you don't want them to be related to that other basket that you have. You can pull up a, an ETF of different sectors that have been performing well, and you can look at the top 10 holdings. In the TD Ameritrade app, it's right there in the app, and you can just slide the tab over to the portfolio tab, and it'll tell you what that's holding and how it's done year to date. And that's a great way, again, to get introduced to new ideas. And if you feel stagnant in your portfolio or you're looking to change things up, a great way to look at that is to look at your overall diversification and say, okay, where is my money consolidated and where is an opportunity for me to add something different? It's like adding a new income stream. People say they want five, 10, whatever income stream. Like that is, is small-minded. Your stock portfolio should have 10, 12 income streams in it by itself. Those are different businesses earning different revenue. So if you have PayPal and Square and Apple and you're, man, I have a lot of digital payments. What else can I get into? Open up um, ticker OCLN or PBW or ICLN, those clean energy index. See what those are holding if you want to own the individual stock. And if you don't want to take individual stock risk, then own the ETF. Take sector risk. And if you don't want to take sector risk, then own the index. At this point, if you're three hours in and you still want to own the index fund, then, you know, it is what it is. But the real money is in owning individual stocks and in picking the ideas that are going to outperform the market, that are going to continue to be demanded by other investors. So I guess I'll close with this. The number one thing that's going to drive if a stock goes up or down is the demand for the stock from other investors. So always be thinking about how other people look at this stock, that if you're thinking about buying it, you should already be sold on the idea yourself. You should already be looking at who are you going to sell the stock to in the future? Who, who, where is this idea going to be 5, 10, 15 years from now? And over the next 5, 10, 15 years, those other investors that come in, who else is going to see what you see? 
Will it be a hard sell or will it be an obvious sell? Because there's a difference there as well. And sometimes it's better to own an idea that's more obscure. The more obscure idea that becomes enormous, the more money you're going to make. But there's a lot of ideas that are really pretty straightforward. And if you just stayed with Amazon since, you know, $300 a share, you are sitting really pretty. Um, And not to give examples of, you know, stocks that have had those huge moves, but there's the ideas between those stocks or that are within those stocks that have had those huge moves are ideas that are honestly really pretty simple and they're really pretty obvious. Like you can't tell me that the run in Apple for the last 15 years hasn't been an obvious run at a lot of times. I mean, as ingrained as Apple is into American pop culture, which leads global pop culture, this wasn't an accident, but it required patience and it required belief and it required, you know, people understanding the idea and not know. I mean, Steve Ballmer used to mock the iPhone and from, from Microsoft and they're putting out their Zune and all their bullshit, you know, it, because it wasn't, if you were, if you were an adult in those years, you knew that there was a difference between an iPhone and everything else. Like it wasn't, it was obvious to to most people. And if you stayed with that really obvious idea and really got to know and understand it over the last decades, you've made a fortune. And I, that's what I want people to be able to identify, not just the Apples and the Teslas and the Amazons are there to show you it's possible. The Microsofts, the Nikes, those are generational ideas that have been right in front of our faces for young people for all of our lives. Disney, for all of our lives. Those will continue to grow. You're not going to go broke owning Disney. I'm almost 100% certain of that. But there's another company out there that might turn into something special. So you keep your eyes you know, always open, your mind's open and looking for new ideas, but you don't have to do anything until you believe in it. And when you believe in it, then you look around and say, are other people going to believe in this too? And if they do, then you're probably pretty safe. Just like if you're 25 years old and you want to buy Tesla right now, you're probably pretty safe because no matter what happens, other investors will still believe there will be another greater fool that believes in Elon a little bit more in the short term. And that gives you some, it alleviates some risk because the demand for that idea, that group of ideas and for the scarcity of really brilliant ideas in the overall market, there's going to be a lot of other people that want to be there too. So, Think about when you're buying a new stock. How hot is that stock with other people? Because with the momentum and being a contrarian and all that stuff, the stuff that you really want to do is, you know, Lululemon's a perfect example of a stock that has had a huge run over the last few years. And to continue to own that stock, you really had to believe in the management, the leadership, the product, and the demand for the brand. Same with Peloton, the demand for the brand, DocuSign, the demand for the brand. 
I refuse to believe that this new generation of ideas is not as obvious as the last generation of ideas. The squares, the PayPals, you know, these ideas are... Uh, PayPal would be the, one of the biggest financial institutions in the entire world if it was actually a bank and not a, a tech company. So the idea that that isn't something that's fairly obvious and straightforward, I just... I largely reject, and that's why I don't like to own index funds as much because I feel like we can pick those winners pretty directly and just own them directly. And if you feel comfortable that, you know, I feel pretty safe that there's a 20-year-old out there that doesn't own any PayPal stock that within the next five years will wake up to the stock market and say, man, I really want to invest in PayPal. And I'll have owned those shares for 12 years or 2015, whenever it came public. These ideas that you've held for a long time, there's always new people coming in. And if those new people demand those ideas, those, those, those stocks will continue to drive. And if you look at fossil fuels for the last five, 10 years, those marginal new investors, people that are 20 years old a decade ago, they didn't want to get in bed with ExxonMobil or Chevron either. And the demand for those stocks has slowly dwindled. So it's all about who are you going to continue to be selling your stocks to. And if somebody is going to be piling into the stock, somebody has to be selling. So who is the current mix of owner and where is that demand coming from? Um, I hope everybody has the best year of investing they've ever had. Believe in yourself. Hit me up if you have questions. Thanks for supporting everything. This is going to be the end of getting started. We're going back to normal podcasts starting this week. Um, but I wanted to hit a lot of the basics. I probably will do another recap of this. Um, but thank you for listening and sharing and for participating in the money school. You guys are awesome. Um, and thanks for supporting the things that I'm doing. Um, it means a lot. 2020 was a weird year, but connecting with a lot of you guys was one of the very best parts of it. So um, thanks for everything. And I'll talk to you guys soon.